welcome to the Women's Theology Speakeasy, a space dedicated to hearing the voices of women over the din. Welcome everyone to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Today I am joined by Reverend Becky Stevens, who is a parish priest and she is also the Bishop's Advisor for Women's Ministry in Birmingham Diocese. Today we'll be talking about her experience of vocation, her role as Bishop's Advisor and the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Welcome Becky. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. So first of all, would you like to tell us a little bit about your journey so far? Yeah, of course I can. Um, I grew up in a small village where some of my family went to church and others didn't. I really valued going to church and it felt like part of an extra family, really. My nan and granddad were very active in the church. I was trying, been trying to remember their roles, but I can't. I'm sure my granddad was treasurer and I know that my, my nan had had a role in lots of different areas. I didn't find the confidence to leave that church, actually, until I was married with children. I used to trek all the way back home to go there because the people were like family to me. But I realised once I had my own children that I wanted them to have that experience too. Returning to my home church most weekends really wasn't great for the family. And I was very lucky to find a wonderful new church and a new family who have been key, actually, to my journey to ordination. I first heard my calling from God and in fact, a little bit like Samuel, I hadn't a clue what God was saying, what was going on, who was speaking, what all these emotions were. And at the time, I was a secondary maths teacher. I was on maternity leave and, and thinking about going back. I wanted to stay at home also and be a full-time parent. So all of these things were juggling in the air. And um, what I did to take my mind off everything was volunteered at church in every which way I could to the point that people were probably fed up with me. And it just became a part of me. And looking back, that was God's way of saying, this is where I want you to be. It felt like God was tugging me to stay in church. And after months of trying to figure that out, maybe even years, I suddenly realised that I was being called to be a priest. And I certainly didn't have the language. But I remember the moment of realisation. I was in my car. I got home, immediately emailed my vicar. And I'll never forget his reply. He said, there's room at the inn. And inviting me to come and have a chat. And the story goes on from there, really. I always wonder how many women are called when they're on maternity leave. It was certainly my experience of calling while I was on maternity leave yeah. in a quiet chapel, hearing from God. I think it's really interesting, and you're right, either on maternity leave or having given up work to take care of children, I do see it incredibly frequently. Fascinating. Mm. There's probably a PhD in there somewhere. I'm sure there is. Yeah, I'm not starting. <laughs> not that, for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, as well as having a vacation to priesthood, as you said, you're you're a mother, and so how do you find that those vacations go together? Well, I have to admit that at first I was a little afraid, and I think it was part of the reason why it took so long for me to admit what I thought God was saying, because. Being a mother was hugely important to me. It transformed my life. And it wasn't quite as I expected as nothing is. And I, I was afraid looking at what other ministers did and how their time was filled, how so many different people relied on them. And I didn't want my children to take second place. But my vicar at the time was a man. I'd never seen a woman leading in church. 
And he told me that he actually thought parenthood and ministry work really well together. He admitted there'd be times when I'd had to be called away. But as a father, he felt that he was there for his children far more than other fathers that he knew. He pointed me towards some theology on motherhood. More recently, Emma Percy's work has has been invaluable. And I remember Bishop Andrew, who's a suffragan bishop of Aston, saying to me, always remember that God called you first to your family. That's not to say that having children once you're in ministry is any different, but I just think that there is so much prejudice about women working with children, let alone being a vicar, that that it concerned me. But I have to say that my vicar was right. It they do they do go together and it is a place of blessing. They can be with me in most of my ministry. And um, they're an important part of my ministry, actually, a really important part because they teach me to be grounded, what's going on in the world outside. So they go hand in hand far better than I ever imagined. It's something that my husband and I say as well, that, you know, our first vocation was to marriage and then our vocation was to children. And then he was ordained and I'm on the way. And Mm. we we certainly try and balance them as, as equal vocations. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. And and some people talk about these sort of, you know, multi-callings or that, that that sense of actually just because God calls you to be ordained, that doesn't mean everything else stops. Your life doesn't stop and change. I'm still I'm still the Becky I was called to be before ordination and that's and that's really important. Yeah, and another part of your vocation is as bishop's advisor for women's ministry. And so what does that involve? That's a role I dearly love and feel a huge, hugely privileged to do that role. Ultimately, it means I'm advising Bishop David regarding the role of women in ordained ministry. I do that in many ways, including monitoring statistics to ensure there's a fair representation of women in roles across the diocese. Sometimes it can be too quick to say we're half our ordained, are half men and half women. That is true, but when you look at um, incumbents, stipendiary priests, area deans and more senior roles, the percentages drop quite dramatically. So so one of my one of my roles is to ensure the bishop knows those statistics and knows that I'm working to improve them. I've done that by nurturing some women, nudging them to apply. I've put on events and arranged mentoring, as well as supporting women through application processes. That's something that I tend to do quite regularly and I enjoy that it really is a huge privilege but on the other side of that I'm also there for parishes who need support and advice around the ministry of women so there are some churches who at the moment might have some things in place stopping them from having a female incumbent or a woman presiding there and they want to change that and equally there are some churches who are looking to have alternative episcopal oversight which means a bishop who doesn't accept the ministry of a woman So I can go and advise them on the five guiding principles, try to ensure they're being adhered to, and also support any of the women and men in that congregation who find that painful. I'm sad I haven't had more contact with you because I came to this diocese already having been through BAP in another diocese. I have to say, I didn't get any help as a woman in that situation. That's very sad. That's very sad, but I'm glad you're here now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and so am I. Um, And how do you think we can encourage women in all areas of ministry, inside and outside of the church? And do you think it's changing? I think it's changing, but... I fear that my in my during my lifetime, probably even my daughter's lifetime, we won't be changed 
as much as we need to be. Encouraging women is vital and it's so important that women know they're created in the image of God and that they are given gifts to build the kingdom. And that's something that we're not often told enough. And, and the great thing about encouragement is, you know, throughout all time, it's true that women are encouraged by others pointing out their gifts and potential. We're not good at recognising that ourselves, which is really sad. But it's, an, it's an, that age old thing where men are chosen because of their potential, where women are chosen when they've already proved themselves. So, you know, I think changing that rhetoric is how we begin. And we're not there yet, not by a long way. I do see some signs of change, thankfully. People notice when a group gathers and there's not a woman there, which is which is a huge shift. And I've seen women becoming more brave, stepping out, enabling, ensuring that they've been seen. And we need to encourage one another to do that and not, you know, not judge others for doing that. Women need to stand up and, you know, we need to get behind them when they do. Amen. And so, speaking of women, the question I ask everybody is, who is your favourite woman in the Bible? Oh, there's so many to choose from, but sadly, so many unnamed. If I had to choose, my very favourite would be Mary Magdalene. And that's, um, I think that's probably a very common answer. But she's um, closely followed by the woman at the well and certainly Hannah too. Yeah, everyone always says to me that's an unfair question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a good question. We're supposed to have favourites. Definitely. And today you have chosen to study Hannah. And Hannah is found in 1 Samuel. And would you, for the benefit of our listeners, who I'm sure have their Bibles open right now, um, <laughs> be able to give us a summary of her story? Yes, of course. As we know, Hannah appears in the first book of Samuel right at the beginning because she is the start of Samuel's story as his mother. Even though the beginning of her story shows she's unable to conceive a child, it does have a happy ending. Hannah's married to Elkanah and she is, as often was the case, one of two wives. And we assume that's because Hannah couldn't conceive. So Elkanah takes another wife for that purpose. And her name is Penina, or Penina, as she's sometimes referred to. Penina does have sons for Elkanah. So Elkanah has children, but Hannah is not the mother to any of those children. And she is very upset by that, even though she's told continually by Elkanah that she's the most beloved wife. She's still pained because she can't have a child. And of course, in her society, a woman served two purposes, really, to marry and to bear children. She couldn't do one of those things. But we read in 1 Samuel that Penina mocked her for this. Elkanah was frustrated. He couldn't bear Hannah's sadness, constantly saying, am I not good enough for you? Am I not better for you than 10 sons? Which is a very frustrating statement. No, Elkanah, you're not. And then Hannah um, does the most beautiful thing. She can't bear the pain and torment any longer. She's weeping continually and can't eat. So she turns to Yahweh. She turns to the Lord. She wails, doesn't hold back, pouring out her soul, crying about the oppression and torment. And she makes a vow to God. She says, if God will give her a son, she will return him to the Lord. She appears hysterical as she's doing this. Eli, the priest in the temple, assumes she's drunk, but she protests and Eli blesses her in return. And God hears Hannah's prayer. She does bear a son, Samuel. She keeps her promise and after he's weaned, she returns him. 
And there's a beautiful part of the story where we hear that Hannah continues to make clothes for Samuel. So she continues to mother him from afar, which I think is such a beautiful imagery. It breaks my heart. Yeah. And so one of the things you pointed out very early on in the story is about the the rivalry mm. between the two wives. Why do you think the this theme of rivalry is found so much in the Bible? And I'm thinking of, you know, Sarah and her jealousy of Hagar, Rachel and Leah, and then even in the New Testament between Mary and Martha. Absolutely. I mean, before you mentioned Mary and Martha, we could think it is all about having children, but I think that's simply limited because in the um in the Old Testament, it's much more about women are, you know, deemed good if they ha- have children and being punished by God if they don't. But actually, that rivalry is found even beyond parenting and being married. I remember once myself having a revelation. As I grew up, I was told, you know, everybody told me girls are nasty, they're competitive. Keep watch out for the girls. They'll be the ones who trip you up. But I remember distinctly this revelation where it suddenly hit me. I was working in a in a girls' school in Birmingham and they were, they were very competitive. And I realised the reason they were is because actually it's something about having to prove yourself in a society where you're continually told you're not as good as, then there, need, there needs to be competition. Women tend to use their beauty, motherhood, education, I don't know, dress size, relationship status, whatever it might be to to bring other women down. And I think that's because they're so used to being put down themselves. You know, as we look through the Bible, that's no difference. Their existence had a purpose. It was to serve men. So actually, women were often treated badly if they couldn't do that or no men wanted them. I think rivalry came out of a despair to please men and to, and to be noticed. Definitely. And as you were talking, I it popped into my head the This Girl Can campaign yes. around sport. And I thought, why isn't it us girls can? You know, yes. why is it this girl can? Well, they might not be able to, yeah. but I can. You know, like, yeah. I'm not like other girls. <laughs> what does that mean? Yes, yeah, that's a re- that yeah, that's a really good point. A really good point. A, a society sets us up to compete against one another all the time. Yeah. Whereas men are told they can have whatever they want at any point. Yeah. Oh. Look, however they want. Yeah. As well. Or someone will want them. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we're told that when when people see my son, they say, "Oh, he's going to be." Bad off the girls I mean therefore the girls have to compete for him I mean that's just that doesn't happen in reality but that's what we're set up to believe well and I've heard I've heard mothers complaining about how um girls around their son would dress provocatively and they're showing so much flesh and you know but just the uh, the idea that that girls are judged and judge each other mm-hmm. and we police each other in a yes. way that boys just aren't expected to adhere to the same rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time. You know, boys are expected to succeed. They're expected to be who they're created to be. But girls have to conform. And this is the same for Hannah, right? Because surely Elkanah, surely he is enough for her. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. He can't believe that he's, you know, he's not enough. 
I'm I've been told all my life how important I am and you got me you lucky woman <laughs> yeah I have the pick of all of them and I chose you <laughs> yes yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so Hannah's Hannah is depressed she's wailing she's in the temple she's pouring out her soul to God and the priest mm. assumes she's drunk do you think this is like when women are called hysterical or over emotional yeah I do I do think it's exactly like that and I think it's something that you know women have try to still themselves so that they don't become all emotional and hysterical. I'm sure every woman listening to this can think of a time when they've been so upset and they've been crying and somebody's just walked away or mocked them to being so stupid. And it's, I think, you know, often men can do it too and they take it out in violence and, you know, they'd be fighting and brawling outside and Eli wouldn't have batted an eyelid. But a woman crying and wailing is something that's so unfamiliar, and I think, I think it, it, I think it's a really powerful thing actually, because I think Hannah was using her femininity and her God-given tears to come before God in that way, and I think it's, I think it's really, really moving. But when I think about all of the women through history, many of our saints who've been treated to appallingly because of their apparent hysteria it breaks my heart to think how much theology and wisdom that we've lost mm, definitely and I think of the mystics and the way that they wrote and even now if if people wrote like that we'd be saying that they were ill yes yeah absolutely absolutely like Julian of Norwich my husband was talking about Julian of Norwich the other day and the way that she felt like she was going to die and actually had a huge revelation of God and and maybe she was mentally ill. Um, maybe she was, but yeah, now... Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah, and our understanding of women's mental health, people always talk about our understanding mm -hmm. of men's mental health being lacking, but I think actually we have a poor understanding of women's mental health as well. We just expect the tears. So we say, oh, you might yes. be a bit down or it might be your time of the month. Yes. And all of these things contribute to our actual mental health being completely neglected. Because Absolutely. I mean I think mental health mental health is, is a real issue for both women and men. It it really is, and it's something that's very different. But I think actually with women, I think we're so used to women having an outburst or being emotional that we we can you're you're right, just push it aside. Oh, that's just you being a woman. And that's dangerous. That is dangerous. And it's really hard for feminism as well, because actually in many cases, and my natural response is to cry, um, especially if I'm angry. I'll never forget when I worked at a cathedral. A lay person who was in charge of something phoned me, and I must have been 21, I think. Anyway, I'd done my job completely fine, but he called me a silly little girl. Oh. And I knew I was going to burst into tears. And I just hung up the phone on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know what he thought. But um, I was... He probably so... did that the least he deserved. <laughs> well, I just thought, you know, if I don't hang up this phone, I'm going to cry and confirm for him all of the worst things yeah, that he's thinking. Yes. And, I, and I couldn't let him have that. Uh, yeah, it's just such a, a female experience that we see lived out here through Hannah. 
Absolutely. I know that I often talk, so when I'm talking to women, certainly women who are discerning ordination, I mean, that's such a such a testing time, isn't it? Emotionally, physically, spiritually. And so many have said, but I spend so much time crying. And I always say, but those are God's, that's God's way of healing. Tears are meant for healing. And I think Hannah is my example of that. Definitely. I think I cried through two thirds of my back. Yes, yes. <laughs> For my listeners, yeah. that, that's the interview process at the end when you're discerning before you go to theological college. Um, yeah. Yeah, yes, so absolutely. Two out of three interviews, I think I cried, especially in the kind of emotional well-being one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and how hard is that, you know, when women are faced in front of this person who's judging their emotion, emotional well-being and we're being compared to men who, you know, can actually have so much confidence in themselves really interesting I've just actually recorded a podcast uh, discussing infertility and adoption and hopefully people might have listened to that before they listen to this do you think that Hannah when she dedicates Samuel to God's service in the temple could she be modeling a form of adoption I mean she could be I mean in a sense we're all God's children and so um, we're all adopted by God but I think there's something quite profoundly different about this this model of offering your child. I mean, Hannah so desperately wants a child, so desperately, that giving him to God was actually not about God needing to adopt a child. It was about acknowledging that God had brought her out of this oppression, knowing that she could go on and have other children. I think adoption is a gift, of course, and like Samuel was a gift to God. But the gift of the son wasn't given to the infertile woman. So probably it doesn't hold a good model. I think we probably need to look more carefully, maybe at the tents of the women sharing the care of the children among Jacob's wives or something like that, where there's that model of adoption or even Moses. And um, the wonderful story there of that the mother who the only way she can save her child is for for someone else to take him in. And they do. So I think probably this is just another story where a woman has to give her child in order to to appease society. And how do we theologically reflect on the ways in which women are unjustly forced to give up children today? And I think that is somewhere where the story of Hannah can be used, actually, because Hannah's yearning was so strong to mother Samuel that even when he was given up, she still made those clothes. And I can imagine her, those night times of anguish, of missing him, of yearning to be with him, her making clothes somehow filled that void and then taking them to him to see him in the temple. I can imagine the separation was unbearable. And although we could say she's lucky that she still gets to see him, that yearning doesn't go even if we can't see the child that's been taken. But I think, again, actually going back to Moses, that's probably the best way to reflect theologically, because actually Moses would have been killed were it not for his mother's love and wisdom to send him out so that he was then adopted into the Pharaoh's home. And still, though, she gets to nurse him. I think it's a really interesting dynamic that there are these two stories where children are still within the reach of their mother. They can still mother them, but can't be their mother. But we re- we still know the pain, and especially as more feminist 
theologians have interpreted these stories, we can see the pain rather than it just being mulled over as it often was. I think thinking differently, not thinking about particular stories, though, I wonder if seeing God as mother birthing us into life, whether that speaks more about that being forced to give children up. If we see God as mother rather than the entitled father, then motherhood maybe has greater value and taking a baby from a mother would be seen as as a form of emotional torture. The divine feminine is definitely one of these questions that we often shy away from because we're so locked into this father narrative, even though we do have a biblical basis for seeing God as mother. And one of the things I was really thinking about, I can't remember why I was doing some writing about Hannah and I was reflecting on, oh, I know what happened. I heard someone preach about Hannah's story and I felt it was quite an unwise preach because of certain things that were said. But in it, I just thought to myself, how many women in this room have not necessarily had to give up a baby for adoption, but how many women have had a termination for medical reasons where they've had to give up that much wanted baby because the baby wouldn't survive or how many women have had to give up their careers because they found themselves suddenly pregnant with a non-understanding boss or the the sacrifices that women seem to make and in Hannah's story I feel like it it draws these these sacrifices out in such a way that I find it such a dangerous text to be preached in a church service Absolutely. I think it is. And I think that that's something about the joys of women taking the place to be able to preach so that we can speak of these experiences or at least be have an awareness of them. Because I think there is there's nothing quite the same as a mother who has connected with that baby because they literally live within us. To then lose that baby or have it taken away or, I mean, even, even in the, in the sense that they have to work and have to hand it over to nursery, you know, handing a child to nursery was the most, one of the most heartbreaking things I did. I don't think we can ever under, underestimate that. And to do so would be to devalue motherhood. But too often the story is not preached well. So Hannah, when she's given her child, probably around the age of three, I would imagine, after nursing, given the child to the temple, she prays this incredible prayer, which whenever I study this with women in my groups, they say, oh, I recognise this. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it's it's quite obviously a a kind of intertext for Mary's prayer. Yes. Is there anything you'd want to bring out from this incredible prayer? I mean, I think it's it's just so beautiful that Hannah gets so much of her voice within scripture. We rarely see so much voice given over to a woman. And um it it is, it does match Mary's song because actually she sings of God's favour for the oppressed and of God's power. It's not about her. She gives everything over to God. Hannah's not forgotten what God has done for her, just like Mary doesn't forget. And her words in this prayer are actually somehow now more constrained. She's no longer weeping. She doesn't appear drunk. She's in full mind. She's content. And actually, these words show that she's been delivered from her anguish 
there's kind of a peace and a dignity in this prayer that was within her all along, just if only she could have this son or this child that she she yearned for. I think it's just so beautiful that Hannah is the one who decides herself to bring this supplication before God. Hannah comes up with the plan as she offers her son to God. It was Hannah who chose the name for the child. Hannah decides the ultimate path for her son. I mean, ordinarily, that's so shocking, isn't it? The son should belong to Hannah, but she doesn't. She does what she thinks is right, and she gets, she hands her son over to Yahweh. And then at the end of all of that, all of that strength and bravery, she brings before God this most beautiful song of sacrifice and praise and worthiness, almost maintaining the right to be Samuel's mother. Definitely. And it's so heavily theological. And it's reminding me again of what we were talking about earlier about women hearing their calling on maternity leave like she's had this baby and suddenly her voice is so eloquent and suddenly she can tell god because i wonder if she's got a glimpse of that creation that we participate in you know that that Mm. creative act where god made the world and then ever since we've been trying to replicate creation and she does this and then suddenly she knows something of God, it seems, that she didn't know before. Yes, absolutely. I think I think it is a profound moment. And it's not something I like to go into too much because um, I equally know the pain of women who can't have children or the choice of women who choose not to have children. But there is that sense of enormity when you have a child. I mean, I... I I can't ever go back to how I was before I became a mother. And actually, I think it's very similar to that sense of what somebody used to call crystallising of vocation, suddenly understanding what it means. And you're right, it it is almost like Hannah suddenly realises the enormity of God's plan. God's plan isn't just about her life and all of the things that are going on around her, but it's much bigger than that. It's huge. As she births a child into the world, she probably reflects on God birthing creation and and it's just the enormity somehow brings clarity and and as you talk about that sense of vocation at first I didn't have the language and you know it took me such a long time I think the words I actually ended up saying to my vicar was I think I want to be a vicar it's what you know want I think I want to be a vicar it's of course it's not about that but eventually with time and anguish and pain you have the language and you have the words and it all makes sense and comes together if only I could be so as eloquent as Hannah but that's never going to happen (laughs) Uh, indeed when I first actually told my husband about what I believed I'd heard from God. It was about three weeks after the fact. Mm. And um, I had to have half a bottle of wine beforehand, so I was a bit <laughs> drunk. <laughs> Eli would be able to fairly criticise me. <laughs> Maybe you'd have a breathalyzer ready. <laughs> uh, so how do you think Hannah might be seen as a model for women's ministry in church today? Well, I, I mean, I think Hannah is, is an amazing example, actually. I mean, firstly... Not only did Hannah portray bravery, but also creativity. And she had biblical and divine knowledge. 
She recognised that God could be persuaded, which I think, you know, are amazing characteristics. And she used that knowledge to create a plan. And she she really does have an awful lot of power that conceptually she shouldn't have. I first realised this about Hannah, actually, in, in reading a book. It was David Runcorn's book, Fear and Trust. And um, he uses Hannah as his as his example. He talks about her as a leader. And it was like it was like lightning hit. So I was like, yes, of course she's a leader. It's just not how I've been taught. He uses her example as a model for someone finding their own way, using their own gifts and abilities to approach God, using their own relationship with God. And he says that Hannah comes from a state of oppression in a patriarchal and hierarchical society. She's being persecuted. But she knows the only way for her to be at peace is to have a child. So she pleads with God. She uses her knowledge of God to plead with freedom from oppression. She comes before God and making a vow. And she's blessed. She knows she's going to be blessed. She goes there with full knowledge. She's very confident and secure in her faith, which I think is an amazing model. We can't, we can't get any better model than somebody that's secure in their faith that they can go and present themselves to God in that way, especially under such circumstances. One of the the things that I really love about this, it's just come to mind, is that often, you know, if you read biblical studies, commentaries on barrenness in the Old Testament, it says, you know, it's a trope. It's mm. because the, the baby that's going to be born is really important. And so kind of they're you could read Hannah as just a, a figure that's there to show the importance of the male heir yeah. that she will have. But actually, it's almost like God knew that people would do this. And so this song, this important song mm. that she does, this ministry that she... How many verses is it? Ten verses. Ten verses of important ministry, even if it's not read in its own right. Yes is then used in Mary's words. And we're not allowed to forget those words. Okay. They have to be said every day at me evening yes. prayer. Yes. So <laughs> Hannah's words echo through. So she's not just used for someone else's ministry. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So she's, she's already a leader because Mary, who is revered so much throughout the world, used her words, knew her words and used her words. And I just, I think that there's something about... Hannah's bravery that that probably you know has brought on so many other women through through scripture the fact that Mary draws on Hannah's word shows that she actually probably Mary looked at her and thought that's someone who I can be like I mean interestingly one thing that I find incredibly heartbreaking is how the story of every man is told by generations of the men before him and women are just very often just given a name and so you know when we read the ancestry of we we're given the the ancestry of Elkanah yet when it comes to Hannah and even and even Penina Penina however you want to say it the ancestry is isn't given at all yet Samuel has this amazing mother who God has, as you say, not allowed us to forget, which is an incredible transformation. And then that relationship between Hannah and Mary, although not physical, uh, replaces rivalry with solidarity. Yes. And I love that. 
Absolutely. And I think that there's something about that I've, you know, within my women's ministry role that I always want is for women to have a role model, whether that be someone they can reach or can't reach. And that Hannah was possibly Mary's role model, creating something really beautiful rather than competition. Well, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for your ministry. And it's really important. And thank you that ordinands like myself know that there is someone that we can go to when we need solidarity. It's an absolute pleasure and a real privilege. So yes, please do come along and chat to me anytime. I could definitely take you up on that. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Becky. Thank you. And thanks so much for your doing with this project. It's great. You have been listening to the Women's Theology Speakeasy. Please subscribe and tune in again.